0: Balance and Sleazy. My first contact with John Balance, Acker, Jeffrey Rushton. Coyle's founder member was in 1995, as a sort of accidental sign that we were somehow shared history for a decade before we finally met. In my experience, you already know your friends long before you meet them. And it was like that with Balance, who, having got my number from David Gascoigne, called me to express enthused admiration for my work and to ask me if I'd visit him in Chiswick and sign copies of my books that he'd been assiduously collecting. Rather tentatively, he mentioned his involvement with Coyle as though it was some sort of occult function too marginal to have attracted my notice and told me he wanted to give me a representative selection of the band's work, thinking I would like it. What he didn't know was that I was already a fan, although largely due to the guest vocals Mark Almond had contributed to two of their albums, Horse Rotavator and Love's Secret Domain. In the same call, he also mentioned David Gascoigne as a shared link, being interested in him as a damaged visionary poet living reclusively on the Isle of Wight which was of course an additional incentive to get together and talk what I didn't know at the time was that Balance, whom I always called Jeff was partly schizophrenic like David and suffered similarly from periodic delusional episodes Balance's voice always quiet reflective and introspectively toned won me over at once and we immediately fixed a time for my visit. what I knew of Coyle was their absence from live performance crediting them with enhanced mystique their minimal public exposure and in interviews given the Crowley connotations the resistant cult status the resilient fan base the albums but little more. I'd learnt from David Gascoigne that Balance had made a single visit to the Isle of Wight to see him and generously brought him a cachet of coil music. As most representative of the left field industrial jaune they tunnelled into deeper and darker than anyone. David subsequently wrote to me of the visits. John Balance visited for the day hoping I'd met Crowley in the thirties, and we spoke of our tribe, L'Octremont, Rambo, René Crevel, Hark Crane, and the Surrealists. He spoke of you and very much wants to meet you. He drank a bottle of wine before Judy drove him back to Cowes for the ferry. Insisting that visiting an address for the first time could be panicky, Balance sent an Addison Lee car to collect me on a gold-dusted September afternoon with the light-like poured Shabley. Balance's lifelong partner, Peter Christopherson, Acker Sleazy, was at the door of 14 Beverly Road to greet me, clipped, warm, perfunctory, black leather zipped jacket, obligatory roughed-up blue jeans, his tech concision immediately apparent in his disciplined approach to even the smallest things. Peter took me straight into the kitchen, looking out on a playing field where Balance was occupied and coaxing a pot of lentil soup to simmer. I told Balance in advance I was a vegan, a dietary platform he'd partially reached at the time of his death in 2004. He'd prepared... Grilled vegetables sumptuously teased with his own cultivated herbs and there were demolished and unopened bottles of Chilean Merlot on the pinewood kitchen table purchased I was to learn later from the local obbins with ogiva negra cabernet that literally translates as black sheep as his favourites. Balance's anticipated bond of friendship with me apparent right from the start, was one that demanded nothing but the easy sharing of intelligent thoughts and the quiet comfort zone that's established. Both of us Aquarians, happier to be inwardly preoccupied and scrolling through imagination than attending to practical affairs, we became instant friends. I noticed a mini slab of my books by his glass on the table, and how much to Peter's evident disapproval he was alternating wine with liberal dollops of Smirnoff vodka while fastidiously attending to his cooking. Coyle, as I was to learn, was only one aspect of balance. Music, as he complained, didn't occupy that much of his time, and for the first 17 years of the band's existence as recording artist, he resolutely refused to do live performance. He pointed to my books as what he called real work, tangible in the way he said music isn't, and one that leaves a physical legacy, a printed basis that endures. I couldn't persuade him otherwise, and he was insistent that what he really wanted to do was write books, although perhaps lacking the focus and discipline necessary to do so but as I was to learn, compulsively writing up fragmented journals and song lyrics scrambled into his own form of poetry. He was playing as he cooked a piano suite, The Perfumed Garden, by the minimalist composer Leon Dudley Shirazby a gay Spanish Sicilian Parsi whose almost sociopathic reclusion and refusal to have his work played live in concert halls struck a resonance with balance's similar dislike of performance and reluctance to meet fans unless they appeared to fit with his sexual requirements. He was different to younger photos I'd seen and was worried about his weight. His waist had bloomed from 30 to 34 due to alcohol consumption, and he feared proving sexually unattractive to the predominantly rough trade he pursued. At the time, inspired by the ethnobotanist Terence McKenna's book True Hallucinations, Balance was ingesting hallucinogenic mushrooms to open biosynthetic pathways into the sort of alien soundscapes Coyle were exploring. Balance, as I got to learn, was primarily a shaman looking to filter primordial energies and, at his happiest, loosed into the natural world and, at his worst, vulnerably paranoid in London's urban wastelands that pushed him further into the abuse of drugs and booze. Balance believed you could travel without the body as objects He'd read on William Burroughs' Advice Robert Munroe's seminal Journeys Out of the Body, and genuinely believed in contact made with psychic entities as part of his drug-fueled psychosexual disciplines. Drink was another stimulant he used in part to get into a trance-like state, and in part to retract like a snail into its shell to screen out over-exposure to reality taking me upstairs to the room in which he kept a meticulously updated Coil archive with multiple copies of everything they'd commercially released on vinyl and CD. The completest in him, cataloguing every band demo, outtake and rarity, he proceeded to give me copies of Coil's entire discography, inscribing the lot with loopy, idiosyncratic arabesques and drawings in silver and gold marker pens as part of his naturally spontaneous generosity. I sensed right from the start an underlying tension between Balance and Peter, as though they'd exhausted the positive in their relationship and were now mutually dependent from habits, and each living independent sex lives within the flexible boundaries permitted. Peter's acutely cerebral, techy precision, a necessary facility in his lucrative video work that helped maintain both balance and coil, often seemed to put balance at an emotionally compromised angle, despite the deep reserves of kindness he invested looking after balance. Peter, who acted as domestic nurse to balance as annihilative drinking Often found it necessary to reproach Balance for being ruinously drunk, a state so normal to his partner it went unnoticed. Disagreements between the two, when they occurred, were snappily vicious, with Balance attempting to drink them away and Peter left on the offensive. I tried not to think too much of it, this evident deterioration in personal relations that had Peter storm off to his studio workspace, leaving Balance and me to talk books. And on his part, his Crowley collection of first editions secured in a locked wooden cupboard and the self-published hand-illustrated books by Ralph Chubb that were so dear to him. Knowing my passionate love of rare books, Balance... Brought in copies to show me of Chubb's The Book of God's Madness and his sexual manifesto, An Appendix, idealising the beautiful young man as homoerotic focus, folio-size, hand-coloured books sometimes limited to ten copies, in which he rightly saw an affinity to Blake and treasured for their organic fusion of drawings and text. Balance, com impulsively collected, his hoarding disorder filling stack stash boxes with books and paintings, his own notebooks and artwork, letters and memorabilia as the random accumulation of what he most personally valued. All of his quarterly royalties from Coyle were invested in books and arts, Reluctantly selling when needed, but invariably preferring to live without money when the occasion demanded. And whenever giving me signed coil records or books he knew I'd value, he'd always provide me with the let out clause to sell if I needed when broke. As our friendship deepened, and we'd meet regularly in the West End to go to exhibitions or for talk and drinks, So I realised the precarious and often turbulent mental states in which Balance lived, his chronic insecurity demanding constant attention from Peter and his violent mood swings rarely stabilising with any consistency. Balance drank, partly to address his mental problems, often drawing or painting compulsively in the process of getting seriously drunk, and partly, I suspect, as a therapy and to give some sort of organised form to disturbed visual images that troubled him when they came up. Balancer's paintings, often using violent colour to celebrate textual resonance, were in part a documentation of queer culture and its criminalised underside with which he identified, done as an entirely solitary pursuit and most often when drunk, Balancer's writings and artwork remained unpublished in his lifetime. Most often, they ended up sealed in stash boxes piled up like clear plastic coffins in a storeroom at Chiswick, and later after he moved to the basement at Oak Bank Western, Supermare. I can remember on one visit to Chiswick, him showing me the extraordinary portrait of a sexual demon, in which an invisible entity displaying hands masturbates a cock that ejaculates at both ends. An image balanced claims was fueled by MDMA, but also owed a lot to his belief in Crowley's systemized sex magic, in which homosexuality is seen as a gateway to higher self-realization lounging in a grey tweed jacket and slacks at home, the combo deconstructed by a slogan T-shirt, Balance looked every bit an adept of the O.T.O., Ordo Templi Orientis, via Crowley's The Book of the Law that advocated autosexual magic techniques and the idea of creativity as a sexual phenomenon. Balance used to tell me, how he could successfully achieve orgasm with projected visualisation of a desired result, or at least he worked towards it. Crowley's writings were seminal to Balance's pursuits and to Coyle's musical objectives, and it's the seriousness of this spooky occult undercurrent that separates Coyle distinctly from their copious and Balance was always clear on it. Sometimes we'd do trance-induced automatic writing together, selecting a theme on which to focus and writing alternate lines in different coloured inks. And if Balance couldn't find a direct verbal link to my line, he'd substitute with a visual his quickly executed spidery diagram used to maintain the flow we'd established. Done either in cartridge paper sketchbooks or exercise books, Other than in some of the lines getting transposed into songs like the dreamer is still asleep, the work was simply an exercise in spontaneous imagination. Balance was interested in primal, unmediative creative energies, tracing the river back to its source, right to the shamanic core. His interest, though, only served to compound the alienation that's so apparent in Coyle's music, so to the melancholy that lived in him like a footwell, at its best feeding creativity, and its worst doing him self-harm by cutting or drinking himself into oblivion. Months before he died of a fall at Oak Bank, he told me on an autumn visit that he collapsed unconscious from drink in the stone hall, and lain there for two days, his dogs instinctively keeping him warm by sitting on him before he was discovered by his home-help Marilyn and taken to hospital with suspected hypothermia. This was one of so many instances of balance testing the frontiers of death, seeing how fractionally close he could push it, millimetre by millimetre, to slipping through the barrier his dilemma was that he wanted to both live and die simultaneously and have knowledge of both states in turn before deciding which to choose. With him, it was a serious ontological issue, how to both live and die, retaining the same individual identity. And this in part was his attraction to Crowley as intrepid pioneer of ceremonial magic. Balance tried unsuccessfully to die so often during our friendship, while at the same time acknowledging creativity as the closest approximation we get to the realisation of some sort of transcendent inner awareness. Whether in a drug fuck days, projectile vomiting, or just congenially warm, socially maladjusted balance... Then he used his body as an experimental lab, a trial run to get into altered states that you couldn't otherwise do. If Coyle integrated edgy angles of queer living in their music, then Balancer's artwork is best expressive of corresponding states of incredible loneliness and alienation in which solitary, distorted figures appear suspended in a contactless, intermediary states from which there's no going on and no return. While he had briefly done clubbing in the late 80s, the attraction was drugs and sex and never collective noise. Balance and Peter were never on the scene, and both being attracted to rent, chose small obscure clubs that opened at dawn, full of rent boys on acid, and undercover police heightening the sense of danger in a druggy milieu. Balance used to tell me long before I began my book, The Dilly, A Secret History of Piccadilly Rent Boys, of how he picked up all the time at Piccadilly Circus in the early 80s, addicted to the butch, street-tough spectrum of rent on offer at the locale. He was blond in those years and as skinny as them and began formulating notes for a book that, like so many of his projects, failed to materialise, although the recordings he made of rent boys telling of their experiences in selling sex will be in some private collection of his memorabilia I listened to grainy cassette recordings he'd made of runaways talking candidly about sniffing glue, robbing punters, getting ill with depression and self-harming being arrested and taking in beating up clients for treating them as gay when they were really straight and the whole repertoire of abusive disclaimers Balance was OK with the risk of encountering possible violence and secretly challenged by its possible potentialities. He remembered Rail King Runaway on his patch, hair-henned poppy red, there for six months and dead from an OD in the kitchen he was sleeping in on St Anne's Court. And for Balance, a standout teen in the microcosm of Dilly Rent, a world magnified to street-law proportions by a disaffected demimond who had used the place in the 70s and 80s. There was also balanced the pantheist, the green Jeff, who opened out into nature, becoming tree, leaf, flower, herb in his immersion back into organic source, a state in which, like a shaman, he fine-tuned his senses to act as a pivotal resting point for instruction. Like Terence McKenna, listening to the language of psilocybin, Balance used natural psychoactives like magic mushrooms to enhance his rudimentary interpretation of plant life. Amazed when I showed him Rambo's poem vowels, the colour code vowels, intersensory associations, A black, E white, I red, you, green, O, oh blue. Balance attributed Rambo's synesthesia to absorption in nature and not absinthe, and the poets believed that vision was sourced through the systematic derangement of the senses as very much his own intended inner direction. Whenever I write about Balance, his image comes up so closely in my mind he occupies my entire headspace. I'm forced at such times to recognise that I'm imagining him as he was. And if anything of him survives, it's not the person I physically knew, but a reinvented simulacrum. Balance, and with something we shared, possessed a real knowledge of wild and garden flowers. We both learned young. I from my mother and he, coming from Nottingham countryside, was largely self-taught. Balance planted out at Oak Bank, a variety of flowers, imperial blue agapanthus, mauve opium poppies, lippy irises, multicoloured Californian poppies, hellbore as the year's earliest arrival, bittersweet snowdrops, blue frilly scabious, candy-coloured sweet peas, rampantly heliocentric sunflowers, and so much else. When Balance was in chronic anxiety states, the one option that succeeded in calming him was to talk of flowers and the green world he literally imagined as rooting in his scrotal sack and streaming into flower each time he came. He often proposed during our years of friendship writing a cookbook maximising on his intuitive gastro-experimental cuisine. His cooking aimed to mix incongruous gastronomics into taste metaphors by producing pops from extreme opposites rather than ingredient harmony. His cooking was capable of mixing peacock's eggs purchased from Fortnum and Mason's into green tea sauce presenting Cassie's cake ribbed with mint, tofu drizzled with lime and blue poppy seeds, and lentil soup infused with opium paste as opportune hallucinogenic starter. Like so many musicians, he felt constrained by the limitations of his art and anxious to reinvent himself through other creative media that to his mind were perhaps more durable. His personality was so permeable, so easily thrown into low self-esteem that it was hard for him to maintain any consistent platform of self-belief. Happiest at home, although aware too much solitude turned him in on himself, he became neurotic about checking prices of coils, items for sale on eBay, elated if the bidding was high and slumped if it was low. It got to the point where he started competitive bidding on coil rarities to keep their financial nose up. What balance needed for me at times was literary guidance. He felt he lacked disciplined education, and while he'd instinctively picked up on areas of reading that appealed to him, accidentally in the way these things happen, or through Peter's solid core of books, he felt at a disadvantage and wanted to improve. I would regularly write him out lists of books that I admired, sensible of what I thought would refresh him, and in this way got him dipping into novels like Anna Kavan's Ice, Alex Trocky's Kane's book, J.G. Ballard's Atrocity Exhibition, William Gibson's Neuromancer, and Michelle Welbeck's *Atomized* for its Anarchic Ideology, Pushing him into influences that were above all modern rather than occult, with its slightly grey fade. At the launch of David Keenan's England's Hidden Reverse, featuring Coil, at Helter Skelter in Denmark Street in June 2003, Balance, wearing a long black skirt, was approached by two Polish boys anxious to assemble his lyrics into a book, and with the four of us going around the corner to first our cafe to discuss in detail a project that, like most things in his life, never materialised. The idea of a book of his writings that I would select and edit and get ready for publication became an overriding obsession with him, without the necessary organisation on his part to set it in motion. Whenever we arranged tentative dates to begin work on sifting through his notebooks, either lacked lucidity through booze or deferred the issue, afraid the writing wouldn't stand up to readers outside of Coyle's devoted fan base. And in a very real sense, Coyle's records are his books, mapping out his preoccupations through a sort of cut-up technique ideally suited to lyrics. Like so many songwriters, Balance wanted a literary association that he was never able to fully develop, as the writing was specific to music and absorbed into its textual layering. Both deeply critical of the degradable quality of CDs, Balance and Peter insisted all Coil Records received a collector's limited issue on coloured grams vinyl as well as refining CD aesthetic by dispensing with fractured jewel cases for gatefold card digipacks, and that the format came closer in presentation to a book. In addition, there were one-off rarities when balanced with hand-paint CD cards in lurid impasto arabesques, maroon, purple, silver, dark green, gold. They were available online only if you were in the know, and quick enough to spot them. There was even an issue painted in Balance's own blood after a drunken accident at home when he cut himself badly on glass. Writing this, I visualise him again with his idiosyncratic habit of pushing his eyes upwards when looking at a painting, as though connecting with a vertical dimension and going up higher, higher, Higher. Unable to cope with the raw assault of London and fearing a full-blown psychotic breakdown if he didn't get out and also in the hope of improving his acrimoniously deteriorating relationship with Peter, the two jointly purchased a converted Victorian schoolhouse elevated above the town in Western Supermare, North Somerset. Balance was right on the edge when he left London, phoning me repeatedly for help, believing he was going to be murdered by a member of the OTO for breaking trust and wanted to hide away. He believed there was a contract out on him and that he would be assassinated by an astral or physical hip man. And outwardly the move appeared beneficial. The house backed onto uninterrupted woodlands where Balance would cruise and was within minutes of a craggy coastal walk giving on to the Bristol Channel. While the environment suited balance, the drawback was he didn't drive or mix locally and became increasingly isolated, often alone in the big house for days or weeks with Peter off on a shoot, something that additionally encouraged him to drink and grow increasingly morose. Alone in the house for weeks, he went to pieces and became predictably self-destructive as a persistent cry for help. I was the recipient of regular letters and hand-decorated packets from him, new coil product, white-labeled test pressings, books that he knew I he, I would like, rare Mark Almond studio and live recordings from the early 80s he'd rediscovered in a stash box, money if I was broke and he wasn't, and always with the assurance that if I needed a refuge, I could live permanently at Oak Bank and simply, as he'd said, not have to worry. Just before the move to Somerset, the three of us attended the 1998 David Sylvester curated Francis Bacon, The Human Body, at the Hayward Gallery, with me arriving early to soak up the feel of the muddy green river the colour of desert combats and its consolidated muscle as the tide pushed hard downstream towards Waterloo. I waited on a concrete walkway for them to arrive and when I spotted them, balance was a long way ahead of Peter walking fast, determinedly towards me. When he reached me out of breath, he told me he'd had a massive row with Peter all the way there and that this time things had been said of almost certainly irreparable. There's no going back this time, he told me, his sad eyes still indented by the row they brought with them. When Peter arrived minutes later, he quickly disappeared to have a pee, leaving balance to fill me in on what had happened. We went into the exhibition to the full assault of Bacon's violent studies of bodies theatrically, collapsed into distorted physique and spent a long time looking at the George Dyer triptych, the mortuary images through which Bacon reinvented his lover after he committed suicide by cramming barbiturates in a Paris hotel in 1972. With his usual tech precision, Peter, true to form, informed us that most of Bacon's canvases measured 198 by 147 centimetres a downsize of conventional portraiture. While Balance and I were taken up with the livid use of colour so characteristic of bacon, orange, indigo, blue, pink and black backgrounds to what are domestic spaces lacking all intimacy with misshapen couches, beds, naked lemon light bulbs and syringes. We stayed up close to the work studying its energised assault and Bacon's ability to push the boundaries of the body to shattering, as though his figures had been condensed into atrocity. And with Peter conveniently having to go off to a meeting, we retreated to the cafe to talk up what we'd just seen, and more importantly for balance, his own emotional wounds. Loading his plate with sticky custard tarts for sugar hits, we sat down and balance extracted from his carrier the gift of a dark green glazed cotton Nigel Hall shirt that no longer fitted him and which he thought would look better on me. We stayed on an hour, an hour, talking. He convinced he couldn't now be reconciled to Peter but at the same time accepting his financial dependency and working relationship as coiled. Although Balance and Peter mutually torrelated each other's promiscuity, the first real rift in relations happened when Balance and Matthew Lewis got together for something more serious than casual sex. It was Matthew who told me Balance's genitals were pierced a ring through his cock and balls as extreme genital body art. Once, when he was doing psychedelics and spontaneously chanting a mantra, I asked him what it was like to be a tree, and he said it was to be present to song and feeling earth power rammed up your ass. So too the sensitivity of photosynthesis that he said was like variants of orgasm. Balanced it the whole primal magic mushroom psilocybin thing that induced what he called the alphabet of the trees that later he'd try to draw, with variable results. Eating the ingredients of ecstasy was central to balance shroom life, while my aversion to mushrooms left me a spectator to him trying, sometimes incoherently, to interpret the altered states he was experiencing. I wrote down in a notebook random bits of what he'd verbalised under the influence. When I enter the mushroom, I'm inside my balls, I want to crawl through the serpent to come out green. I can feel leaves growing up my spine. The tree tells me on which branch to sit, sit. If the branch breaks, I can fly. I'm fucked and choking. Norman's here, but he can't see me. Being dead is like being drunk. Cocks mushroom and mushroom cock. ''We've all got a patron who sends us here. ''Mine has abandoned me because he wants to change places. ''Some people can't be anywhere. ''The mushroom takes them into its house.'' The problem for balance was that he could find no comfortable resting point in reality and his tireless search for alternative states was frustrated by the transient nature of whatever drug he was doing. It was really only the cultivation of his garden and the love of it got him closest to an enduring passion. From Oak Bank he wrote to me, My garden is self-seeded like a madman's dream vision garden. It should be glorious next year. It was is glorious this year, with nitophea, crocosmia, nasturtiums, persimmons, Californian lilacs, spurges, I have so many plans for next year. A wild meadow area, a hawthorn hedge in white and ruby red and magenta, an area for irises to provide a triangle of colour and form in the mixed grasses' lawn. I also have planned. And in the same letter, there was news of additional domestic practicalities. Peter's father's inheritance has come in, and we have a little money to finalise some ideas for the house, Two new beds, separate bedrooms now after 20 years. It's a wonderful, simple freedom to have leg room and no snoring. Peter snores terribly. I'm off the drink now for a while. There are other intoxicants I can turn to. Alcohol makes me the basest I can make myself. And it's getting boring without drink, both for myself and those around me. And boredom was a big part of it all. And until he became a live band in the last four years of his life, Balance was the conceptualist ideas man and lyricist and vocalist when there were vocals, but none of it pushed him. Despite being central to Coyle, his paranoia fueled the belief he was not only dispensable, but also imminently replaceable on account of his worsening alcoholic condition and unreliability. It wasn't that he missed gigs, only three took place without him, it was more that the drink and substances necessary to help front the band exhausted his inner resources, in turn contributing to the depression that for much of the time was his natural state perhaps influenced by Whitley Stryber's books on alien abduction involving reports of invasive biological molestation and William Burroughs's endorsement of Strieber's accounts in Communion, Ballant shortly after moving to Oak Bank, shared with me in letters and conversation the certainty he'd made alien contact. According to him... He'd been investigated sexually out on the coast by what he called a grey encounter involving missing time that he assured me wasn't due to intoxicants. He told me he'd taken off for a walk on the coastal path in the early evening and felt intuitively he was on the edge of something significant happening. In fact, ever since the release of Coyle's time machines, extraterrestrials, aliens, zombies, time slips, were on his conversation radar, both of us believing that Close Encounter was an accepted phenomenon rather than a sci-fi invention built around the concept of higher intelligence or interplanetary AI. According to his account, he'd gone out at sunset and was walking aimlessly as you do, hoping for something to change internally. He described going into over what he called a temporal consciousness, a sort of big ovoid light, and finding himself in what was a micro-operating theatre in a bubble of white light attended by four figures in suits, like grey cover or condoms. No language was exchanged, and Balance described what he believed was his genome being decoded on a digital stick within seconds powerless to resist whatever virtual examination took place through his eyes that were sprayed to stay open, he recalled seeing numbers in bright psychedelic colours, at the same time realising consciousness was made up of electromagnetic numbers that resonated with the entire galaxy. He told me he feared castration when attention shifted to his genitals and the stick ran over his balls to decode something to do with hormonal intelligence. He had no idea of how long the encounter lasted, only that he was ejected from the lip bubble by a forcible flash of light and found himself in woodland several miles from his home, exhausted, disorientated. He got back to his house and collapsed. It's easy, given Balance's drug profile, to attribute his alien encounter to psychedelics, something he was anxious to correct with me, and confirming his account of E.T. abduction. He claimed the invasive microsurgery had taken years off his life and left him totally exhausted and traumatised with a deep sense of abandonment, in that he knew he could never relocate his rogue visitors. There's a whole literature of alien abductees rehabilitating from missing time that has me believe Balancer's account, whether hallucinated or physically experienced as part of zombie contact. What he seemed sure of was that space was composed of neurons and that the human brain indirectly, number, with the hundreds of billions of stars in the spiral. Milky Way. And while the complex physical and psychological procedures carried out by non-human visitors have no authentic scientific validation and are variously considered to be part of psychopathology, in which sleep paralysis, false memory syndrome and hypnotizability may account for the belief in being abducted, then balance like Strieber maintained the serious conviction that he'd been tampered with on a parallel dimension. The thing about balance was that, like me, he was always waiting for something apocalyptic to happen, some inner event to become an outer reality. He'd formed a sort of friendship with Julian Cope, whose book, The Modern Antiquarian, an esoteric study of Neolithic monuments, he dipped into for doses of psychogeography, some of it undoubtedly fueled by mushrooms. For a time he took to listening to 60s psychedelia, hoping to do a cover of Pink Floyd's 1967 single See Emily Play, and capitalised on Sib Barrett's original loony, insouciant vocal. He also wanted to strip down the Stones' 2000 light-years from home into a coil produced extraterrestrial drone intended musically to take him back to one of his planetary homes. Balance was at heart one of the dispossessed who, despite having comfortable homes, largely identify with the socially disinherited, invariably inviting his warring negative capability to push Peter away from him in the process. From what he told me, he'd been abused as a child didn't seek therapy, suppressed it, and looked to Peter as a surrogate father. There was no way, given his dependency, he could have coped without Peter, and things fell radically apart when he took up with the artist Ian Johnston for the last 18 months of his life out of the desperate fear of being alone. Ian's own health problems, he was already long-term, self-medicated HIV and suffered from chronic psoriasis, a condition that periodically threatened to suffocate the pores of his skin, were sufficiently demanding without the addition of balance's chronic health problems. This, compounded with an emotional instability not unlike balance's, in some ways magnified rather than reduced balance's, own state of natural anxiety and living in Tottenham, north london ian simply wasn't at oak bank with sufficient regularity to deal with balance's ongoing crises instead support was diffused to a circle of friends including myself whom balance usually drunk with foam for help and remained talking for hours sometimes he would self-harm just to be admitted to hospital and come out with prescribed drugs Ian, too, for all his kind intentions, had little or no knowledge of Coyle's music or the basis of its amoral paganism. Balanced with his incurable gravity to self-destruction, wanted out of perversity to be HIV as a queer statement, and through unprotected sex with Ian, became that in the year before his death a status that had one firm of local undertakers refuse outright to prepare his body for an open coffin funeral. Balance, I think, wanted to follow Derek Jarman into a death that radically departed from straits and an illness that fully integrated him into queer martyrdom. He somehow felt it incumbent on him to be HIV positive and to join Ian in a sort of shamanic symbiosis when they fucked on Welsh hillsides and Lake District Peaks in their sexual return to nature. Ian even encouraged Balance to grow a beard that altered the soft lines of his face and considerably aged him as part of their attempt to go back to nature, Were plans to relocate to a cottage in the Welsh hills and be absorbed into rural life. Balance looked the natural phenomena as a primary source of inspiration, the Equinox EPs being part of that mystic expression, and I was to receive in the post a copy of one of the scarce books he raided for terminology when writing lyrics, Rare Halos, Mirages, Anomalous Rainbows and Related Electromagnetic Phenomena, compiled by William Corliss. Inside, written in purple, was the inscription Jeremy Reed, from your good friend, in real realms of poetry, pains, and passions, with much love, love, and rare rainbows, moonbeams, and white rainbows. Let us dwell deep in nurturing nature. John Balance, 28th of March, 2000. I have my own theory. This is a specific poetry gene, a chromosome existing in some individuals that helps naturally facilitate being a poet. Balance, though, was more taken up with random theories of creativity he deliberately explored, like ritual drug use, sleep deprivation, lucid dreaming, cut-up derived from burrows, sidereal sound, organised chaos theory, and as much for the sensation As the overall results, he used to maintain that after Coyle's three more commercially successful albums, Scatology, Horse Rotovator, and Love's Secret Domain, Coyle had collapsed into cult. It was something he attributed perhaps to the self-indulgence in having their own label and putting out work that sometimes, while it lacked objective evaluation, was nonetheless highly significant to their loyal fan base. In fact, Product was essential to Coyle's survival, with the collector in balance excitedly awaiting the delivery of first white-labeled test pressings of a new album and handing out signed copies to friends who were there at the time. I was fortunate to be the regular recipient of packets of new CDs and vinyls, always addressed to Jeremy Reed poet in residence in bold, idiosyncratic handwriting executed in magic marker or black felt-tip. Balance always lacked cash, cash, as he quickly converted money into possessions, as I do with rare books, and was, in his own estimate, mostly broke. The Bohemia in him constantly showed up when he couldn't afford basic necessities due to buying a rare Crowley book or piece of art and was forced to fall back on Peter for help. He lived like that day by day, as I did, seeing money as a purchasing power and not as stockpiled, untouchable credit. Largely apolitical, he was, however, greatly excited by the apocalyptic overtones he read into the kamikaze destruction of the Twin Towers. He was in Russia at the time as a terrorist nuke, heading his letter to me from St. Petersburg as First days of World War III. I'm up at 9 a.m., he wrote, having not really slept at all due to chemicals and a huge sense of unease and excitement about the New York destruction. We were playing there three weeks ago. America's deserved such a slap in the face for years. It's hard to take seriously a country that makes one of its priorities after the first plane hit the first tower to close disney world in orlando save mickey mouse balance found chemicals amongst coil fans wherever he went as a prerogative to touring only too willing to experiment with whatever was given him on sight renowned for his coprophiliac tendencies He delighted in telling me about his visiting William Burroughs in his New York loft and that Burroughs was so freakily disciplined he continued writing while speaking and signing a stack of first editions for Balance and Peter. Apparently Burroughs only stopped work when Balance produced a small cake containing bits of excrement that he excelled at baking. He and Burroughs sampled it together with a mixture of methadone and vodka as an alarmingly improvised cocktail. Burroughs's skinny reporter was grey, his body reptilian, his mind unstoppably hyperactive in the superstring connection of conspiracy theories leaked into his work. He was proud, too, that Burroughs' a sort of liking for Coyle's subterranean soundtrack for the movie Hellraiser that was never in fact used. Over the last year of Balancer's life, the desperate cause increased, and on one of his London visits to stay with Ian at Tottenham, he stopped off at my flat, inexplicably shoeless, and asked me to edit on the spot a piece he'd written for an Austin Osmond spare catalogue that required some serious rewrites that he simply wouldn't take on board. There was blood caked on one of his arms and the back of his right hand, where he told me he'd split it at two that he in some way associated with Peter. He was shoeless, he said, because of his return to nature, and given his unnerving state, I insisted on ordering a minicab to take him over to Ian's. A month later, Ian informed me the balance had slashed a tattoo in the High Street, needing stitches, and been sectioned for a number of days in Tottenham. With Peter showing no sign of returning from Thailand and actively looking for a property there, Balance's sense of anger and betrayal reached an unmodified peak of frustration. While Ian did his best to offer emotional support, he understandably lacked Peter's knowledge of his partner's complex mental health issues and the self-destructive propensity in Balance to quickly nosedive into reckless binge-drinking. There was every reason to think Ballant should have been hospitalised during this period, of intensely traumatic upheaval involving the uneasy transition between partners. He was dangerous to himself, needed cleaning up, had chronic sciatica, and to form Live With Coil, his booze consumption for the week preceding a show was potentially suicidal. Aversion implants, too, were only of temporary help as he invariably pulled them out to continue drinking. But there were good days, too, intermissions when he really tried, and on one of these the two of us visited Harrod's Food Hall for my preference for fermented black teas like China White Point and Tarry Sushong, a smokier blend of Lapsang Sushong that I purchased there for fine tea aesthetic balance picked up some cheeses and handmade chocolates and there were rent boys outside constellating the building hoping to filter off wealthy clientele when we came outside the dense gray knightsbridge cloud base lifted and the orange sunshine streaming through made it into a transiently charged london moment we shared with balance temporarily liking the capital again and wanting to go into soho and sit outside on old Compton Street, face-spotting as you do to select looks in the randomised crowds. Balance was essentially a student of his own distress, a dealer in agonised human crisis in which deviated behaviour was supported by a correspondingly acute sense of isolation. His was a sort of magnified existential loneliness felt as much in company or relationships as alone, and which could only be briefly dispelled by his immersion in drugs or sex. Creativity doesn't heal mental anxiety, at least not in my case. It simply makes it present to the artist through whatever the medium of chosen expression. In that way, balance was constantly thrown back on himself. And what was insufferable inwardly became so outwardly hearing your distress on record, doesn't cure it. Coyle propitiously came to public notice in the 80s when a lively emergent music scene hosted indie, electro and new romantic with the critical support of what were in-depth reviews of albums and the likes of Enemy, Sounds and Melody Maker. By the time of the post-millennial meltdown of the industry and the arrival of ubiquitous downloads, the band was sustained by a cult reputation that permitted them freedom to experiment independently without the fear of financial loss. And in many ways, it made Balance lazy and determined to exploit Coyle live as a more dangerous creative entity. Tucked into his rural retreat in North Somerset and increasingly turning to online as a conversation for his generic shyness, he would jokingly refer to his Victorian stack as Usher, and the place was ambiently cold, like you could cut the house atmospherics into grey slices, like a brain rashed for cryogenic preservation. He liked to recall the some Bazaar offices in the early 80s with fans of soft-cell coil and the-the squatting the chaos, and often sleeping there as part of the drunken disorder generated by its founder, Steve O, as hoodlum entrepreneur. The Balance, who moved to North Somerset, was a damaged survivor, hoping to regenerate exhausted energies and full of plans to do so that characteristically never materialized. The idea of a rural retreat and Balance loved deep English countryside seemed in theory advantageous to some sort of recuperation, only sadly to turn into its opposite. Balance once referred to his life as like the scene in Jean Genet's film Un Chant d'Amour, in which the screw shoves his gun into the prisoner's mouth, has him kneel in front of him and suck the barrel. He mostly saw life as an explosive suck on a system with the potential to blow up in the process. At his best domestically, when he was most relaxed, he spoke as little of music as I did of poetry, and when he did it was mostly to express his disdain for most rock-pop, with the exception of Joy Division, The Velvet Undergrounds, like me he loved Sister Ray, Mark Almond, who was understandably his favourite vocalist, Little Annie, and the transitional pre Lamb Bowie of the man who sold the world and hunky-dory, and of course the wrist-cutting morbidity of Lou Reed's Berlin. Staying with balance was always special, special, and provided creative stimulus for us both, and given the fact we both suffered from various degrees of sleep disorder, we'd both usually be awake by 6 a.m., when I go visit his sea facing room, climb onto his bed and just talk. It was the best times we shared before he started drinking or was taken up with animosity over the break up with Peter, sitting islanded on his bed while the skyline erupted red and pink through foggy grey sea clouds. Acrimonious calls to Thailand, most often about money, were often fueled later by drunkenness stoking some unresolved issue balance. after which he'd drink more to try and bury the trouble he'd just caused. I don't think he ever thought of growing old, whereas I am conscious of age and death each second. At least he never talked of it or planned to adjust. I think he knew he would die young because he was capriciously negligent about life. There was naturally a limit to how many times he could fall over and be picked up and reassembled, and a timeline to Coyle's duration and that Peter's geographical separation implied inevitable change. The big difference was that Peter could cope practically and earn independent of Coyle, and balance couldn't. Although he irrationally feared removal from the band when drunk, Coyle was his only identity, and out of it, he'd never have stood up to a remake. Given Balancer's propensity for creative experiment, something texturally inspired on his part by the cut-up technique employed by Brian Geisen and William Burroughs, and his love of musical innovators like Lamont Young, Alvin Lucia, Arvo Parts, Morton Feldman, etc., we decided together to work on a series of spontaneously verbal collaboration. Our irregular attempts at some sort of automatic cut-up survive still in pages of a notebook in my possession called Sugar Alcohol Spook Apocalypse. As a lead into the process, I would give him the associative opening line, like in one instance, London Bridge is falling down, and we proceeded through free associations from there. The last time, I visited Balance at Home in Western Supermare. He was an unusually long time coming to the door and appeared bent over, using a broomstick for support and was in acute pain from sciatica, hobbling with skewed, uncoordinated steps across the stone floor. With Ian in London, Balanced lame, quite irrationally he'd been deserted by everyone, "'and adopted his characteristic needy role of abandoned casualty "'who was comfort-drinking on top of too many painkillers. "'He looked hunted, as though what was happening inside wasn't good, "'and we went straight into the kitchen "'where he kept a wooden drawer full of over-the-counter painkillers, "'popping four or five from their silver foils "'and swallowing them down with a glass of wine. "'He'd been taking them for days,' he told me, "'but still the pain in his back wouldn't abate. He was completely broke and when we called a doctor for a home visit he had to defer payment and later called a number of London booksellers to see what sort of money he could raise by selling certain of his rare Ralph Chubb books. His call to Peter demanded money, demanding money ended in a stinging row, a mini crescendo of contentious aggro that only put him further into drink we listened by way of respite over and over to Sarabji's perfumed garden, as though his life depended on it. And by late afternoon, thick sea fog came down, a blue insulating wall sealing us into a lamplit space, looking out on the hazy Bristol Channel. Balance, who was warned by the visiting doctor that he should check into A.E. as he'd overdosed on ibuprofen, Neurofen and Paracetamol, of course, took no notice and continued to drink. We watched a movie, the remake of the 1999 British film of Graham Greene's Our Man in Havana, and almost as a presentiment of his own imminent death, Ballant said to me out of the blue, everything we do gets forgotten in ten years. Coyle will go that way. Why should anyone bother? Alcohol combined with foils of analgesics were furred in his speech, but the next morning he brightened after having provided me with a black sequin duvet to sleep under, and we sat in the bookroom looking at his collection of signed Burroughs books and placing the coil live one to four in the collector's slipcases. In slightly less pain and in a better mental window, He only started drinking in the early evening when the fog returned, sealing us in for the night. I returned to London the next afternoon after picking up his prescription from the local pharmacy, worried about leaving him alone, but assured Ian was due the next day. It was a drizzly, somerset afternoon, and I wrote my way back to Paddington, working on my Annika Vaughan book having given Balance her novel ice, knowing its hallucinated architecture would appeal to his end-of-time sensibility. I was never to return to Oak Bank, and my last afternoon with Balance was a Soho one, weeks before he died. He'd gone vegan like me and Ian and wanted to shop at what was fresh and wild on the corner of Glasshouse Street and Brewer Street for organic produce, and we met there and picked up tofu, tempeh, miso-pasta, vegetables, tea-pigs, etc., as he was going on to Tottenham and wanted to cook. Coming out of the store, he told me he needed to see someone called Andy outside Regent's Palace Hotel. Andy apparently knew somebody who knew somebody who built a drug that facilitated male multiple orgasms. According to Balance... "'It was precipitated in goat's piss and contained traces of semen "'rent boys had saved from sex-addicted punters "'together with other dubiously potent libido enhancers. "'It was reputed,' he said, "'to give you a bullet orgasm.'" "'When Andy showed up on the wrong side of late in a black woolen hat, "'Balance unquestioningly exchanged money "'for what looked like a disused bark flour remedy bottle with a dropper,' and gladly pocketed it, convinced its contents were potentized to radically boost his sexual energies. Noting Andy's surreptitious manner, I remained decidedly sceptical. We parted for the last time ever on the corner of Glasshouse Street. He'd given me that afternoon several packets of nicotia seeds, the sweet-scented white-flowering tobacco plants that for years found by annual Renewal in my garden, a flower imported from the Americas and popular with the Tudors, and in my imagination, sniffed at by Marlowe and Shakespeare, musty, testicular, night-scented, rough and refined like the Elizabethans in their cultural and sexual symbiosis. Balance grew everything that had force, scent and colour, associating flowers with a visionary modality, a Blakian world in which lion-faced sunflowers exploded out of the earth, transmitting heliocentric signals to the sun. When I received the call from David to early one brutally cold November morning, telling me Balance was dead from a fall, the initial shock was cushioned by my treating his death as still another unreality that would be corrected by his endless sources of reinvention. I was told he'd fallen or plunged headfirst over the first-floor balcony, his skull forcefully impacting on the stone floor, leaving him brain-dead. Peter was over at the time and in the kitchen and reportedly rushed out to discover Balance's crumpled, bleeding body and immediately called emergency services before shooting photos for police use of his partner's smashed body. How Balance fell remains a matter of conjecture. The first-floor wall was at least chest height, so either he'd hauled himself up onto the ledge at the time and drunkenly tumbled or deliberately, physically projected his body over. Was anyone else there at the time? I have a feeling, independent of conspiracy theories, there was another witness. Balance, no matter how out of it, didn't risk all like heights, and the idea of him sitting above a steep, hazardous drop doesn't, in my mind, make sense. Was there some sort of struggle on that ledge that he accidentally tipped over? Who really was there? Peter and Ian are both dead, leaving an insurmountable question mark. On the morning of Balancer's funeral, November the 3rd, 13th, 2004, While listening for comfort to a live recording of Mark Almond singing the highly elegiac blues when I was a young man, the bedside light that I remembered switching off started to flash on and off of its own accord maybe ten times before it stopped, a phenomenon I immediately took as some sort of psychic signal from Balance that he was making contact. Norman Pearson drove me from his Fitzroy home to Balance's Somerset funeral on a day of oppressive, low-slung cloud with surges of blue sky showing through. Norman had bought a single bunch of violets at liberty to place on Balance's body in an unflinching, face-to-face, open-coffin funeral conducted entirely by Peter. Balance's love of wet woods in mushroomy autumn was uppermost in my mind as we drove deep into foggy Somerset, stopping to watch a configuration of crows assert a hoarse tribal dialect in a black convening mob as a sign, almost a presentiment in a drizzled clearing. We arrived at the wooded chapel, where dressed in white fake fur Peter conducted the ceremony, often breaking down in the process with David Tibet and me reading poems, standing by the open coffin, and with Balance dressed in a grey checkered wardian suit Ian Johnson had made for the occasion. At Peter's request, we all wrote a last message on a scrap of paper and placed it on Balance's body or in the coffin as a final gesture to accompany him to the crematorium. After the rites or celebrations. We gathered outside in the grainy lights and waited as a black carriage driven by a single black plumed horse arrived to take the coffin away across a rural track through the brown leaf-stripped woods.